episode 220, Episodes of Care Payments, A Lower Risk Way to Take on Risk. Today, I speak with Francois Debrant, Senior VP over at Remedy Partners. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, we are talking episodes of care payments, otherwise known as bundled payments. Just to catch you up, if you are unfamiliar, this type of payment model means that a healthcare provider packages together all of the services needed for an episode of care and then charges a guaranteed price for guaranteed quality of care. If we're talking about government payments, about 50% of, for example, knee surgeries are paid for right now in an episode of care fashion. In the private pay landscape, that number is lower, but it is growing. Bundles have advantages to purchasers, i.e. employers or taxpayers who are the ultimate payers. And those advantages are that it is possible to predict and compare the target price that the purchaser will pay. It's also important for consumers who are, even in the best of cases, partial payers. Bundles make healthcare prices transparent in a way that FFS, fee-for-service, can never manage. Today, I speak with Francois Debrant, who is Senior VP at Remedy Partners and a noted expert in episodes of care and bundled payment initiatives. Francois also actively supported the launch of the Leapfrog Group, He created Bridges to Excellence and led the development and implementation of Prometheus Payment. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Francois Debrant, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Great to be here. Does the new MSSP that just came out intersect with this conversation at all? It absolutely does. So the rule on the Medicare shared savings program that came out shows that and that the government, first of all, continues to have a very a clear and defined line when it comes to shifting appropriate financial risk on the backs of the delivery system and that there's very little wavering that is going on. And by the way, this is one of the few areas of policy in the country that's completely bipartisan. Uh, So nothing is likely to change in this administration, the next administration, with respect to this policy line. What the new rule of MSSP says is, look, this notion that you can continue to be on an upside only and wait out the movement towards downside risk is it ain't going to happen, right? You have to make a decision. And oh, by the way, if you decide not to take financial risk and get out of the MSSP program, you're going to have a whole bunch of really upset physicians because those physicians today, according to MACRA, have to have a certain percentage of their care under an advanced alternative payment model, meaning something with downside financial risk, if they have any hope of getting a bump on their Medicare fee schedules. So I think what the government's doing is making it first very clear that you can't stay in upside only, and I'll get back to why that's also going to be the case in the private sector. But two, knowing full well that for those organizations that pull back, there is going to be intense pressure from the bottom, meaning the physicians, on those institutions to say, okay, well, you're out of MSSP. You better figure something else out. And that something else is very likely to be episode of care payment 
because there are few, if any, additional alternatives. Now, let me go back to the why this makes sense and why abandoning these upside-only deals makes sense. If you think about it from the payer's perspective, so take any health plan, including Medicare, you've got deals out there with providers in which, for many, if they have a savings, if they achieve savings, you're paying out back to them a portion of those savings. If they have losses, you're not collecting from them. Well, this is akin to a casino that would be paying out winners and never collecting from losers. They wouldn't stay in business for very long. So every single payer understands that these upside-only deals should be temporary in nature to kind of get people used to the idea of financial accountability around costs of care, but it simply is not financially sustainable. You have to move to upside and downside risk, and that's the message the government's given. So the original tracks that were offered for the alternative payment models and some of the other bits of macro that were at one time available, they were basically baby steps. And the idea at all times was to phase them out once people got used to and and created and built the systems that were necessary in order to assume downside risk. That's correct. And look, there are many organizations that do not have enough Medicare beneficiaries to be in in a full total cost of care downside financial risk arrangement. When you look at the statistics around the potential for losses based simply on the variation that could occur from year to year in the mix of certain patients, you can sustain losses and some pretty big losses that have really very little to do with how well you've coordinated the care of patients or how well you've delivered care, but more or less the luck of the draw. And people say, well, isn't that taken care of by risk adjustment, et cetera? The short answer is no. And the the only way that you can make up for that variability is by having very large number of Medicare beneficiaries, more than 20 or 30,000 in your shared savings or upside and downside risk program. So the bottom line is that there's a lot of organizations in the U.S. for which taking on that full total cost of care downside risk for Medicare beneficiaries is a really bad idea. And the alternative, therefore, ends up by being episodes of care, because uh, at that point, you're really limiting your downside financial risk to what happens within an episode of care. And that's a manageable financial risk. So let me just parse out what you just said, or what I think you just said. When we're talking about actuarial viability. (laughs) Uh, You have to have a critical mass of patients for all of the statistical, you know, margins of error maybe to get ironed out. So in other words, if I have like, I'm exaggerating it, like three patients, then there is a great likelihood that something is going to go wrong with those three patients because it's just not enough patients to make sure you know, 100% sure that there's no just random statistical variables or whatever with those particular patients that something bad is going to happen with all three and, you know, have enough other patients that it's it's all going to kind of even out. That's exactly right. So when you're, when you're taking on total cost of care, we know and the actuaries know that there's a very small percentage and people usually say, well, you got 20% of the people costing 80%. That's not where that significant potential variability can come in and kill you. It's really on the half of 1%. So what I think about is the tail of the distribution of very high cost patients 
where the mix of those patients is completely unpredictable. And they oftentimes get aggregated into the high-risk category. Well, if in one year, your high-risk category is expected to be a million dollars, and it turns out to be half a million dollars, you've had a very good year, even though it has nothing to do with your actual performance in managing patients. It's just the luck of the draw. The following year, what if it's two million instead of one million? So it was expected to be a million. It's two million. It could wipe out all of the savings that you've legitimately generated in managing the other patients that are under your contract. So the only way to avoid the almost certain variability that is going to accrue on that half of one percent is if you have a lot of patients. Because at that point, the year-to-year variability has a tendency to attenuate a little bit, or at least you can absorb the shock. Regressing to the mean can work for you or against you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So what I'm hearing you say is that if you don't have enough patients, a critical mass of patients, and what was that number that you said is kind of the magic number? Well, there's a study that was done by Derek D'Elia from Rutgers University a few years ago on this very subject that showed that anything south of like 25,000 Medicare bennies, beneficiaries or 25,000 Medicare individuals, starts getting into a danger zone. Let's just say you're in a position where you have less than 25,000 Medicare beneficiaries. And as you said, you've got physicians who are clamoring, obviously, for their Medicare reimbursements to go up because that's how doctors make a living. Then one potential avenue to pursue to make the doctors happy while at the same time making sure that you don't get burned by assuming downside risk that you just don't have the critical mass to support is these episodes of care. How exactly does that fulfill the needs of the physicians? Well, it's not going to fulfill the needs of all of the physicians in the Medicare program, but it is going to fulfill the needs of the majority. And that's because we estimate that you can put underneath an episode of care payment program roughly 70% of total costs. So if you think about all of the different types of acute events, procedures, both inpatient and outpatient, conditions, cancer, diabetes, all the rest of that, it amounts to about 70%, 75% of total costs of care. What you need as a physician in order to uh, be exempt from the merit-based incentive program, which is terrible, um, and all the physicians agree is just absolutely MIPS. terrible. Otherwise MIPS. known as. Yeah, okay. otherwise known as MIPS. So to get out of MIPS, mm-hmm. you need to have at least half of your revenue tied to an advanced alternative payment model. So you can get there with episodes. And the good news for most physicians is that that 50% of your total practice revenue threshold can be had by a combination of both Medicare dollars in advanced APMs and non-Medicare dollars, whether it's Medicaid or uh, private insurance in advanced APMs. So the bottom line is that for the vast majority of physicians, if the health system that you're affiliated with or the ACO that you're affiliated with is no longer in the Medicare shared savings program, then there is an alternative. I would say at this point, there is only one alternative, and that's episode of care payment. It's not as if Medicare has a slew 
of other advanced alternative payment models that it can offer up to physicians today. So either you're in total cost of care or it's episodes. The reason why episodes are an alternative here is 75% of services provided at this juncture, there's episodes of care that would accommodate them. So if I think about all of the FFS charges in that charge master, I could bundle them up, like 75% of them could be included in some sort of bundle. Is that what I'm understanding? That's right. 75% of those services could be included in a particular episode. Maybe it's an episode of heart failure. Maybe it's an episode of COPD. Maybe it's an episode of cancer. There's a whole bunch of different conditions, different procedures, different treatments that can be paid under an episode of care payment construct. And a physician must receive 50% of their payment in some sort of advanced payment model to get the Medicare bump. So therefore, if most of your services or, you know, let's just say you don't have any of the more highfalutin (laughs) downside risk, you know, the bigger models, but you just do lots and lots of episodes of care and you manage to get 75% of your services covered by episodes of care, then you're still eligible for the Medicare bump. That's exactly right. I learned something today. Relative to bundled payments, one of the things that comes up, there was just a study the other day by the team at Harvard, and I think they were looking at knee surgeries, if I'm not mistaken, and basically found that there was no quality diminishment between hospitals charging FFS versus hospitals that were charging a bundled price for those services. Once again, you often see individual orthopedic physicians, at least on social media, complaining that as bundled prices come into force and as the price goes down, you know, if the price is pushed down, that quality of care will start to diminish. What's your thought on either the Harvard study showing that the quality of care was not diminished in any way versus individual physicians on social media complaining that that's not the case? Let's dive into a few different aspects here. So first on that study, it's both important and unimportant. (laughs) So so I love paradoxes. (laughs) Yeah. It's important in the sense that from a research methodology standpoint, it's going to be looked at as the gold standard. Why? Because it was really observing the effects of the mandatory comprehensive joint replacement program. And in that program, you had very specific geographies that were selected by Medicare in which all of the providers would have to participate. So it's not optional, like the bundle payment for care improvement program is optional. The comprehensive joint replacement program, the CJR, is not optional. If you're in that geographic area, you're going to be paid under an episode of care construct, whether you like it or not. So from a researcher standpoint, they had almost what amounts to a controlled study, which is incredibly rare in healthcare payment, where you can observe what happened in an area and what happened in a control area, meaning an area where there wasn't a mandatory program. And so what they what they found, to your point, is that overall costs decreased and quality didn't change. So this is where we get into the unimportant part. The unimportant part is that that finding is now, I think, the sixth time that that particular finding has been found or refound in 20 plus years of work in, in episodic 
Medicare payment dating all the way back to the late 1980s when Medicare did the cardiac bypass surgery episode of care payment program. So we've known for over 20 years that this type of payment program actually works. And so that's the unimportant part. It's like, seriously, do we really need another study to tell us what we already know? But back to why this is important is that this may actually be the last one on this topic (laughs) because the conditions of the study are such that it's almost like a clinical trial and you can say definitively, yep, it works. So that's number one. Number two, as far as the orthopedic surgeons are concerned, look, these these statements of it's going to destroy quality of care have been around forever as the discussions on payment reform have been had. If you go back in the history books and look at the comments that were being made by physicians and hospitals at the time DRGs were introduced in the country. It was the same thing. Oh my God, this is going to destroy the quality of care and reduce access to patients and you know whatever other fantasy of catastrophe that people could think of. None of it, of course, has happened. So these stories, these, these exaggerations of catastrophe, loss of access, reduced quality have always been the bones that have been thrown out um, as uh, red herrings on payment reform, but they're not based in any factual reality. It's just people like the status quo because they make money. And anytime the status quo is being disrupted, they react to it. I would also say, by the way, that when providers are concerned that the prices are going to decrease in things like orthopedic surgery, they're correct. And the prices should go down by at least half because a lot of these surgeries now are being done outpatient as opposed to inpatient. So the patients don't even stay for a full day in the hospital. They get discharged same day. And as a result, they're increasingly being done in ambulatory surgery centers as opposed to the OR of a hospital. That in itself cuts the price in two. And the outcomes of the patients end up by being a lot better because they get back on their feet sooner, which is now highly recommended. Pain management ends up by being a lot more efficient, which avoids potential dependency on opioids as an unintended consequence. So you get better quality outcomes and significantly lower price. And let's not forget, let's just not forget that the reason why we're doing all of this, where we're spending time trying hard to get payment reform finally anchored in the DNA of the health system is because consumers directly and indirectly are paying the price and they should get a break because they've been shouldering, all of us have been shouldering the cost of all of these egregious price increases. And it's about time we got a little bit of relief. And if some folks aren't happy because their padded checkbooks are getting unpadded a little bit, too bad. (laughs) Yeah. And if anyone has any question about that, just read any of the books by Dave Chase. He goes into great length about the impact of healthcare on the, especially the middle class. If I'm a SNF, a skilled nursing facility, what do I need to know about what this conversation that we're having in, let's just say, 2020 versus 2012? Yeah, if you're a SNF or if you're any other type of post-acute care provider, I think back to that study from that was just published from uh, Harvard researchers, the majority of the savings 
in these types of procedures for the Medicare population ends up by being in post-acute care. And the reason why uh, there's so much to be had in uh, post-acute care savings is that the decision about where a patient ends up by going once they're discharged from the hospital following either an acute event, it could be a heart attack, it could be a bad case of exacerbation, a heart failure, whatever the reasons are that they end up by being in the hospital, they get discharged after they leave. And a lot of them today are being discharged in settings that are of a far higher intensity than they should be. The reason why these discharges are being done in those locations has nothing to do with clinical care or clinical quality. It typically has to do with relationships, with habit, routine, availability, you know, all the reasons why uh, decisions are made other than rational reasons. And so post-acute care in particular uh, has seen uh, oversaturation of skilled nursing facility uh, beds, inpatient rehab, everything that has been fueled by fee-for-service payments. So when you change the game, when you realign payment and you start moving away from individual services to episodes of care in which the entirety of the post-acute care is included, you're going to make very, very, very different decisions. And that's what the Harvard researchers have seen. That certainly has been the experience in every episode of care payment program to date. Hospitals, physicians start looking at what's going on across the entire care continuum. So if you're a skilled nursing facility or you're anyone in the post-acute care space, you have to start making some tough decisions about how you demonstrate the value that you're bringing to that episode of care and the entire episode of care. And potentially, you're going to have to figure out how to right-size your operation if you've grown to get a capacity that is likely to be greater than the real clinical need suggests. Do you see, as a broad stroke, integrated delivery systems who are creating some very (laughs) narrow networks of post-acute care facilities that have demonstrated abilities to provide value? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly one of the steps in, in that direction. I think the other logical evolution isn't just going to be the integrated delivery systems that do that, but individual physicians, specialists in particular, who are going to be very motivated in these episodic care payment programs to think about the entire episode and what happens to the patient during that entire episode they're going to take on much more of the role of the care coordinator and and guide. And before even the patient goes into the hospital, they're going to have conversations with those patients. And I've seen it happen in in almost every implementation of of an episode of care payment program I've been in. It doesn't take very long for those physicians to really re-engineer the way they deliver their portion of the care and the way others do as well. So they have conversations with the patients ahead of time saying, look, you're going to be in the hospital. This is the type of surgery. This is what requires. How's your home environment? Are there steps? Irrespective, if you, if you have any kind of acute event in your old and you have to walk three flights of steps to get to your apartment, then the decision on where you go post-acute may be very different than if you live in a ranch-style house with easy access in and out. So questions about your home environment. Is there someone there to help you? Right. All of those start guiding the decision And that decision becomes based on both value, am I getting what I want for that patient, appropriateness, is this the right care setting 
that's going to get the best possible outcomes and the quality because quality in post-acute care, skilled nursing facilities, inpatient rehab is highly variable. So it's not just the integrated systems. It's really the physicians who are managing the patients during those episodes of care are taking responsibility for what happens before, during, and after. Yeah, and I interviewed actually a, a couple of years ago now Michael Hunt from a health system in Connecticut. And, you know, even at that time, they were investing a lot of effort in creating some very formalized, evidence-based ways to evaluate which of the post-acute facilities they were sending patients to. So it's probably the rest of the country is starting to catch up. Yep, absolutely. So talk about Remedy Partners. What is your role in all this? It's at multiple levels. And, you know, earlier we talked about the lack of volume of dollars going into episodes in the private sector compared to Medicare. And that has to do with mostly the old claims administration, claims adjudication, claims management systems that most of the health plans have. And they struggle with how to implement these episodic care payment programs administratively. So one of Remedy's roles in accelerating the movement uh, to value-based payment is to offer more of these turnkey solutions to third-party payers so that they can find it a lot easier to implement and administer them. The second role is really in helping providers. And we help providers in a number of ways. That downside risk, even on an episode of care payment program, is scary for a lot of providers, and in particular physicians. Even if they feel comfortable and confident about their ability uh, to manage patients, you know, crap happens. And, and, and if you do have a bad year for whatever reason, are you going to be able to sustain the financial loss if you have a financial loss? So if the answer is maybe, I'm not sure, then having a partner that can help you weather those bad days is useful. And so Remedy takes really partners with those providers and takes financial risk alongside them. As a result, the third part is helping really in, in providing timely information to providers along the episode care continuum so that it prompts them to think continuously about selection of the right set of care, prompts for the patient on shared decision-making, other things that really make a difference in the quality outcomes and the financial outcomes of an episode. So we see really our role as a facilitator, as an organization that has a, a series of, of capabilities and competencies that can decrease and address the pain points that a lot of the stakeholders in the system have. Payer pain points are can't get it done administratively, we try to address that. Provider pain points are, I don't know what happens outside of my zone. How can I get visibility in the entire care continuum? We help with that. Other pain point, I'm concerned about financial loss. I'm concerned about losing money and not being able to pay those bills. And we help with that. So that's really our role. We're all in on episodes of care because we believe that it can, back to our earlier conversation, create a much more dynamic market in healthcare, give consumers transparent information for health events, something that they can understand. You can restructure benefits around an episode of care. You can match up demand and supply around an episode of care. You can make the system just a lot more functional than it is today. And if someone is interested in learning more about Remedy Partners, should they go to your website or where can they get more information? Yeah, of course, the website is a good source to get more information. And that's remedypartners.com. 
Yes. Check the show notes out for the other contact information. Francois de Brandt, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.